0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36 this evening. We're actually taking a step back here and um, in the book of Genesis. We've actually finished chapter 37. We've looked at the life of Joseph, uh, how he's uh, been sold into slavery by his brothers, and then uh, treated as if he were dead we're going to go back now, because of the business meeting tonight, we're going to have a little bit of a shorter time in the Word, chapter 36, uh, the the whole chapter uh, through chapter 37, verse 1. And this passage really gives us a a summary conclusion of the life of Esau. In fact, this will be the last time in the book of Genesis that you hear his name. Uh, Similar to uh, Ishmael in chapter 25, he's not really mentioned again. Uh, he's not the chosen son. The the focus of the text, the the way that uh, Moses lays this out, is he focuses on the chosen son. So Abraham, and then he goes to he talks a little bit about Ishmael and that he was a son of Abraham and that there are some blessings associated with that. But but that after Ishmael's done, he focuses on Isaac, and then the same thing happens here. You have some discussion about Esau, but the focus is on Jacob, and. Uh, and then on to Joseph, the, uh, the one who would receive the birthright. And so here we have the end of, of uh, what we know about Esau from the book of Genesis. And it's quite sad because Esau had the birthright and the blessing within his grasp. Uh, the birthright had to do with the material portion of the blessing that would be passed down from the Father. And then the blessing the one that Jacob deceived him out of the blessing was the uh was basically a governmental right that he would have the ruling uh ability that he would receive and Esau uh basically gave up the one in order to feed his, his hunger uh that was the birthright and then he was cheated out of the other one uh simply an innocent person victim in that story where Jacob Uh, Jacob's mother finds out about it and she has Jacob go and and, uh, tell him about it and and deceive his father into believing that he was Esau. Jacob received the blessing and the birthright. And so, in an effort to regain his father's favor, uh, he tries to marry someone out of Abraham's family. But when he does so, he actually marries an Ishmaelite. And although he was true, was part of Isaac's family, uh, really Ishmael's family, uh, Abraham's son, these people were not godly by any stretch. They um, they had intermarried with the Canaanites, which was against what God wanted them to do. And so Esau was just trying to patch things up really with his father, and he foolishly goes and marries an Ishmaelite. And so I'm going to read the first uh, eight verses. A lot of the rest has to do with genealogies. I'll t- I'll t- walk you through some of those other verses towards the end. But let's just read the first eight verses here. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and of Bema, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Gibeonite or the Hivite, also. Basamat, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaioth. Ada, bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basamat bore Raul. And Aholabamah bore Jeush and Jalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother, Jacob, and for their property, uh, for their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now uh, we're going to focus on. This whole chapter, leading all the way into chapter 37, verse 1, and I think the main point of this is that secular greatness grows more quickly than spiritual greatness. Secular greatness grows more quickly than spiritual greatness. In chapter 36, we see that secular greatness grows rapidly. Esau is increasing in his secularity. And and we see that at the very beginning of verse 2. Esau took his wives from whom? The Canaanites, right? The daughters of Canaan. Where did Isaac take his wife? Did he take his wife from the daughters of Canaan? I mean, did Abraham, did Jacob? No, they all went out of the country away from these wicked people because God had told them to. And Esau takes his wives from the people that hated God. And so first, I want you to notice who Esau married. He married three women that we're told about in here in, in chapter 36. First, Ada. Notice what, uh, where she descends from. She's in, she's a Hittite. The daughter of Elon the Hittite. And she has one son. Uh, we're going to see him in verse 4 there. His name is Eliphaz. And then you have next in verse 2, Aholabamah. You notice, from where she descends and she descends from the end of verse 2 Zibion the Hivite so you have the the Hittites the Hivites, and then verse 3 you have Basimat she descends from Ishmael and uh, Ahol has three sons Jeush Jalam and Korah and Basimat has one son Raul so we have Basically, five sons, grandsons that come to esau and um, and these marriages seem to be politically driven that is if I marry some of these people within the Canaanite people, then I will gain more popularity and more power among these people isn't that how Solomon was such a strong ruler? he would marry the princesses of uh, of these kings, right? The daughters of these kings. And then he would be in good standing with these kings because, of course, they had to treat their their daughter well. And um, so Esau's recipe for success was become secular. okay? Leave God out of the picture, become secular, intermarry with these Canaanites, and then uh, I can grow in power. But what do you get when you cross a person with little concern for God, and three pagan women. You get a pagan family tree. And that's what you get with the people of Esau, known as the Edomites. We'll talk about their history here in in just a second. So, Esau married the Canaanites. second thing I want you to notice is where Esau's children were born. Notice verse 6. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all the cattle and all his goods which he had acquired. Notice, where were they born? In the land of Canaan. Now he's going to move out of it, but but, but what I want you to notice is that he takes his wives from Canaan and his sons and daughters were born in Canaan. Now this is going to be... Uh, uh, important to contrast him and Jacob later i 'll show you why, okay, but that's what I want you to notice right now. He took his wives from Canaan and his children were born in Canaan. Third thing I want you to notice is they did they did not stay in Canaan. We just saw that in verse six. He took all of his things, look at the end of the verse, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. Why, for their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, so he didn't stay in in Canaan. The reason for it was very similar to what happened with Abram and Lot. Okay, this this area is not big enough to sustain us both. So we need to separate. Okay, they're, they're starting to become conflicts with my herdsmen and your herdsmen. And so we need to, to separate and Esau decides to go on down to Seir. Seir is south of the Dead Sea. It would be south of the land of Israel. In the land, it's kind of a hilly country um, known as Edom. It's actually a really well-fortified area to defend against attacks because you could, you could easily perch yourself up on a hill and, um, and uh, build up a fortress around that, and it would be hard for people to attack Edom. Isaac also had to separate himself from Abimelech. You remember the king when, when he was digging all these wells and the, the people were saying, no, this is our land. And, and so Isaac had to move on his, his uh, people onto other places. And here we have the same sort of thing. It becomes too crowded. There's so much success uh, as far as livestock and, and the fruit of the land and so on that Esau decides to head down to Seir and make a name for himself down there. And this should not be surprising because Esau's father Isaac had prophesied that Esau would move away from the fertility of the land. You remember when Esau came back to Isaac after Jacob had already deceived him, and Isaac realized what's happened, and all Isaac can say is, "The only promise I have for you, Esau, is that you will not get the fertility of the land." Okay, I already he promised that to your brother Jacob. So I. I can't give that to you. You're actually not going to get that. So Esau gets something else. He moves outside of the fertility of the land of Canaan. And so Esau's increasing secularity begins with marriage to Canaanites, births in the land of Canaan, okay, children born in the land of Canaan, and then a moving out of Canaan, all of his resources, and now a, a, a further growth, really, increased power that he's going to receive in this other land. And so we see this increased power in uh, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. And uh, if we were to read through all of these, perhaps it wouldn't mean a whole lot. But what I want want to do is make a couple connections for you to show you uh, why I think Moses puts this in our text so that we can understand uh, some of what's going on here. In verses 4 through 19, we have a list of Esau's sons again. We already saw them in verses 2 through 5. We, we saw that he has these... Uh, I said grandsons earlier. There should, should have been sons there. The five sons that he has. And so now in verses 9-14, through 14, they're recorded for us again. And then in verses 15-19, through 19, we have a list of these chiefs. Notice verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz. The firstborn of Esau. Chief Teman. Chief Omar. Chief Zepho. One of the lost Mark, Mark's brothers, I think. Chief Kinez, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and so on. And what you're going to find is that in verses 15 through 19, you have 14 chiefs that that descend from Esau. 14. And um, these were not chiefs of families. These were actually chiefs of tribes within the people of Seir, that is Edom. And uh, so we have... These chiefs. You have uh, in verse 15, you have four chiefs Timon, Omar, Zepho, and Kenaz. Verse 16, Korah, Gatam, Amalek. Verse 17, you have four more Nahath, Zerah, Shema, Mizah. And verse 18, Jaush, Jalam, and Korah. And so Esau, what we should see here is that Esau's family has moved to a prominent position of power. And he was the father of five and the ancestral leader of 14 chief leaders. 14 chiefs of 14 different tribes. Now what I want you to see is, is the number of chiefs that there are in the rest of the land. Okay, And we see that in verses 20 and following. Look at verse 20. These are the sons of Seir. Okay? Now think about this for a second here. What is the name of the land to which Esau goes. Remember what the name was? It was Seir, right? We saw that in verse 8. The hill country of Cedar. Seir. Okay, so now this man's name is Seir. So how do you suppose the city got the name? Right? From the from the man. So if he's the man that either discovered it or is kind of the head of it, you would expect that he would be a pretty powerful man. He's a, a Horite. Here we found in verse 20. Notice. The inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobol and Zibion, and Anah, and Dishon, and Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chief descendants from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Eden. Sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah, and and so on. So what you have in verse 20 is, uh, is a list of these chiefs. Now look down to verse 29, because here you see it more explicitly, more clearly. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites. Chief Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. Someone count those up for us quickly. How many do we have? In verses 29 and 30, how many do we have? Seven. Okay. So you have seven total chiefs from the people of the main guy, Seir. And how many did Esau have in his family? Fourteen. So over a short period of time, he rises to power secularly in this land. And in addition to that, one of his sons, Eliphaz, married a Horite woman. Look at verse 12. Timnah was a concubine, or a lesser wife, of Esau's son, Eliphaz. And then you see her name repeated in verse 22. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Chemom, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. So, not only... He has 14 chiefs, but of the other chiefs that he has, he also has power in a sense that way because of the relations that he has through his son, Eliphaz. And um, now, now look down to verse 31, because we're at a time period prior to the reign of kings in Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? Remember? Saul, so, okay? as about 1500 B.C. We're currently at 1800 or 1900 B.C. So this is three, three to 400 years earlier. In verse 31, you have, now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Notice, isn't that interesting how the name of the land changed? Verse 8, it was Seir. And now, it's Edom. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Remember what Edom means? Look at verse 8 again. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, so now verse 31. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. And then it lists the kings. Now, do you remember what God told Rebekah when she was pregnant with the twins? Okay, after telling her you're pregnant with twins, um, the ultrasound came back and so on. Then did He say... Two babies are struggling in your womb. Do you remember the language that he used? What was it? Two nations, right? Or two groups of people. I think he actually says both things. Two nations are struggling in your womb. Chapter 25, verse 23. So what we have here is now a fulfillment of this prophecy through Esau away from the land of promise. Okay, the land of promise is now being handed over to Jacob, but it's going to be delayed. Uh But Esau is the father of a great nation. And the name of that nation is Edom. Edom, verse 8, or um, or, uh, Edomite people, verse 9, has has the meaning of red. And that's why the region is given the name Edom, because it was named after its leader, Esau, which also means red. Now, some people say that there are some reddish, rocky, hilly areas there as well. And that could be the case. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But but the main thing is that it's named after its father or its main leader, Esau. Esau has that same meaning. So what we have here is a quick rise to power for the people of Esau. And I call it secular because of God excluded. it's God-excluded. It's God-excluded greatness. And if you know anything about the history of Edom following this time period it's not very good the descendants of Esau would become bitter rivals of the descendants of Jacob Okay, so Edomites were rivals of the Israelites and when Israel was wandering through the wilderness after leaving Egypt the Edomites would not allow them to go through their land they said no go around go somewhere else we are not going to allow you to come through here but despite their mistreatment, God told Israel, You need to be kind to Edom. And then when Jerusalem was conquered in 586, Edom stood back and watched. They could have stepped in and helped, but instead they stood back from their hilly perch and thought, This is great. Israel's being captured, destroyed, controlled by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. The Edomites would later move to southern Palestine and were then known as the Idumeans. Can you think of a famous Idumean from the New Testament? King Herod. King Herod was a descendant of Esau. Of course, he tried to kill Jesus in AD 70. The Idumeans rebelled against Rome and were destroyed. And they became a fulfillment of the prophet Obadiah. If you read through the, prophet, uh, the prophecy from Obadiah, you're going to read about the Edomites. And the promise that's given there in chapter 1, verse 10 of Obadiah is, they will be cut off forever. And really, after 8070, you don't hear anything else about the Edomites. You don't hear anything else about the Edumeans. They've been wiped from existence just as Obadiah had promised. And so, the point of all this in chapter 36 is that when we have success without any thought of God, we may rise to power or to prosperity quickly, but we will surely fall. Secular greatness often grows rapidly. Secular greatness often grows rapidly. But notice chapter 37, verse 1, because here's the second thing we want to see, and here's the real focus of the text, I believe. And that is that spiritual greatness grows slowly, but we could say is sure to remain. Whereas secular greatness, is rise, secular greatness rises quickly and is sure to fall, spiritual greatness rises slowly but is sure to stand. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Esau? Why are you including this in the text? And, and the reason I, that I am is because I think Moses includes it in the text. Now, in our translation, in our, in our Bibles, we have chapter markers. And so we think, okay, this one section is one chapter. But remember, that the chapter markers were added later. Okay, chapter 37, verse 1 actually is included with chapter 36. And the reason I know that is because of how Moses marks off verse 1 of chapter 36. It's 36. These are the records of the generations of Esau. Then look at chapter 37, verse 2. These are the records of the generations of who? Jacob. So that's why I say 36.1 through 37.1 is one section. So what does this verse have to do with anything? Now, Jacob lived in the land, 37.1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. What Moses is doing here for us is he's providing a contrast. Now that I've shown you Esau and his secular rise to greatness, now let me show you Jacob. And think about the contrast here. Esau's family was born where? Do you Remember? His family, his sons were born in the land of Canaan. Where were Jacob's sons born except for Benjamin? Inside the land or outside the land? Outside the land of Canaan. Isn't that interesting? And then Esau rose to power quickly while Esau was still alive. But how long did it take Jacob's family to possess the land that was promised to him? Okay, let's, let's just try to do a little bit of a timeline here. How long did Jacob live in the land of Egypt? you remember when Joseph was over there? Then his brothers come, and then they say, send back for your father, and so on. They were skipping a lot of chapters and, and just summarizing quickly. But then Jacob actually moved. God said, it's okay. Moved to Egypt. How long did he live there? Anybody have any idea? Okay, Jacob himself. Yeah. 17 years. But that will actually get to my next point. How long did his descendants live there? Because they were, they were there. They were at a position of greatness, really, because they were connected with Joseph. But when the Pharaoh died, remember the beginning of Exodus, there rose up another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And they did not know God. And as a result, Israel now becomes oppressed. And there's the answer to the next question. 400 years. Actually, more precisely, 430 years. Right? So you've got 17 years that Jacob lived there, then 430 for the rest of his descendants. And then what happens immediately after they leave Egypt? They wander around in the wilderness. How long was that again? 40 years. Okay, so you math wizards, where are we at so far? 17, 430, 487. Good. All right, so we're at 487 years. And then how long did it take to conquer the land of Canaan, Joshua? you remember how long that was? It was about seven years. Okay, so what we're talking about is close to 500 years. 500 years before Jacob's family finally rises to greatness, and it's only a matter of time before they actually lose it. And what we're actually going to see is, I say, well, they continue to stand. Spiritual greatness stands. But ultimately, that God was doing something bigger than just giving them the land. And that we know that during the millennium, that land will be theirs once again. And so while well, Esau, during his lifetime, is able to see the prosperity because he is really doing it uh, apart from God and, and it seems like God's blessing being poured out and there's a sense in which God was blessing him. But, but, but then spiritual greatness takes a long time. Sometimes we don't get to see the fruit of our, of our labors, of our faith secular blessing that comes while God is excluded is like a a weed. It grows up real fast. You, You see it. It's noticeable, but it doesn't amount to anything of value, but spiritual blessing, spiritual greatness is sourced in God is more like the growing of a tree. And it grows up very slowly, and you may not even be able to see the fruit of the tree in your lifetime. But God has promised to bless Spiritual greatness. Spiritual faith. And that those who trust Him with faith and faithfulness may not see the blessing in their lifetime, but, but can be sure that it will come. And so, we need to live with long-term perspective. It's so easy as Christians sometimes to become short-sighted. I'm a very task-oriented type of person. I like to set myself... Uh, Goals and see them accomplished. I like to mark things off my list. That's the sort of mentality that I'm built to do. But that makes it, it does not make for good gardening. Okay? Because what does it require if you're going to be a gardener or a tree planter? What's the one thing? Do you remember in James chapter 5 that the farmer patiently waits for the the summer, the early and late rains? It, It requires a lot of patience. And sometimes you don't get to see the immediate results of what you've labored for all season. And when you're working in the garden, you have to be patient. You have to recognize that even though the only things that keep popping up and surviving are those pesky weeds, you, you still keep on doing what you're supposed to do. You remove the weeds, the hindrances for growth, like Pastor Hakama was saying that Wednesday, remove those hindrances of growth And then make sure that it has plenty of light and water and make sure that the animals and bugs are not destroying what is coming up. And if you're faithful, by the end of the spring you'll have nice blooms of flower or throughout the summer you'll have nice vegetables that are coming. As Christians, we're happy to obey God with what we know He wants from us. But if we don't see the immediate results, we're like the gardener. Who's given up? Who gets frustrated over the weeds and just says, you know what? I'm done with it. I don't care if it gets enough water. I don't care if the weeds grow up and choke out the plant. I don't care. We need to keep being faithful. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I can't help but think about this passage when I think of long term perspective and faithfulness. what we need to recognize what faith comes down to is believing what God has said said, even though we don't see immediate results sometimes. Believing that God's Word is true even when we don't see the immediate results sometimes. And that's really, I think, the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Here you have all these people who lived by faith. Verse 3, by faith. We understand. Verse 4, by faith, Abel. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, and so on. Okay, so we're talking about people who lived by faith. And after you get through Abraham, notice what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 13. All these died without having received the promises. They didn't get to see the fruit of the labor that they had as a gardener. They did all this work and they didn't even get to enjoy the fruit of it. They died without having received the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now skip down to verse 35 because you see more examples of this. There are some who received back their dead, like these women here in verse 35, and others, they were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would be made perfect. All of these died without having received the promise. And then they go, he goes on to talk about other people of faith. And then verse 35, and then some of them were tortured. Some of them were sawn in two they they lost family they were persecuted they were ill-treated afflicted there's no growth here i've done all these spiritual things and i don't see anything coming up Is god forgotten is god's word not true and the answer is that all of these have gained their approval through their faith, they believed what God said above what the, the immediate results seemed to indicate. It seems as if nothing is happening. That I must be doing something wrong because I can't see the spiritual growth. So what should our response be if all these received the promises after they died? And the response would be this. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people of faith in chapter 11, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the glorious promise that we learn from this passage that doesn't usually show up on the mantle of people's houses. You may die without receiving a prosperous life. You may die without experiencing all the promises that God has given to you. You may die without your loved one coming to Christ or your grandchildren coming to saving faith. You may die without seeing the church established that you were praying about or contributing to. But you know what? God may bring those people to Christ after your death like George Mueller who had prayed for many people throughout his life and that he fervently prayed for them. And one person who he prayed for for 40 years never came to Christ in his lifetime. But after he died, that person accepted Christ. You may die not having seen the benefits of the faith that you've displayed. But that's okay. Because when we have a long-term perspective, a perspective that lasts more than the gardener who pours the water and says, nothing's coming up. I just removed all the weeds and, and it's just sitting there. I'm just looking at dirt, the same dirt I saw yesterday. When we have long-term perspective, we see, you know what? This doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. God's got something bigger going on than just my little world and what I'm doing, the faith that I'm expressing. You see, God's doing something much bigger, not only in this world around us, but also within our little time frame of life. That is... Beyond our lifespan, God's doing something bigger so that He may be using your spiritual uh, uh, expression of faith to bring somebody to Christ that, that you've been praying for or ministering to but maybe at, happen, takes place after you, you die. So, what, what does God expect of you right now? What responsibility do you have right now to God? Is there something that you see in your life that just it's so frustrating for you right now because you can't see the results, you can't see the quick growth that you want to see, the results. and if you feel that way, you're not alone. okay you're not alone. you're not the only one that experienced. There are other people, I would assure you, in this church who are struggling right along with you that want to see God's blessings and want to see it now. We want to see the fruits of our labors. We want to see the, the response that God gives or the grace that God pours out when we actually do follow Him and, and obey Him and, and live in faith. And you're also not alone historically. That there are these great men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 who wanted to see the fruit of their labors in their lifetime. And even Jacob would love to have seen the fruit of his labors. Moses, what a great example, right? He, he he works with these people who are so obstinate for 40 years, and and he never gets to see the fruit of his labors. He 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 only can see the land of promise from a distance. So you're not alone when you think that way. But what we need to do is be alongside these same people and recognize that God is doing something much bigger than our little world. And although secular greatness may rise rapidly. Spiritual greatness often grows slowly. And so that means we need to look outside of our small little world. See what bigger things God's doing in the world around us and historically. Throughout time, how is God establishing His kingdom? How has He used people even beyond their lifetime and beyond their little scope of ministry? How has God used those things to accomplish His purposes? Are you a contributing servant in God's program, living by faith, or are you sitting on the sidelines, sitting on the, the porch of life, so to speak, just watching things happen, not really involved in anything? Has it become just too much work? You know, I was happy to serve God when I could see the results of my growth, but now if I can't see it, I'm not going to be a part of it. Faith is believing in what God has said even if we don't see the immediate results. God is true. What He has promised is true. So we need to trust Him even when we don't see the immediate results. Let me pray and then we'll uh, go to our prayer time. Father, thank You for... The example of uh, Jacob, he certainly wasn't perfect. We're going to learn more about him and his family as we go through this book. But um, we recognize that although Esau may have rose to greatness quickly, didn't last, wasn't something that was ultimately desirous of what you wanted for him. And we can become so short sighted and blind as Christians, even because we take our focus off of our Savior. So I pray that You'd help us to have perspective, both historically having a longer-range perspective than our little uh, time frame of life, and also geographically, that we would see that there is much more going on in Your program than our, our little area of service. And although we are not unimportant in Your program, we certainly are not all of what You're doing all of, of what you're focusing on in your program. And so we pray that you'd help us to look beyond ourselves and ultimately to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and give Him the glory that He deserves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.